I'm Michael Barber, and this is the Accomplishment Podcast. I first met David Blunkett in the early 1990s. It was a privilege for me to work with him on the development of New Labour's education policy. Then, from 1997, when Labour came to power, I worked with him on ensuring the policy was actually implemented, that it really changed the lives of children and young people, especially those in the most challenging circumstances. Working with David was one of the greatest privileges of my career. After four years of Secretary of State for Education and Employment, David became Home Secretary just months before 9-11 changed the world dramatically. I caught up with him as the UK was in the midst of a period of unprecedented political turbulence. It got me thinking. Given the current context, with another PM, another reshuffle, and even a new monarch, what advice would David give to an incoming minister, or even to an incoming prime minister, on how to actually accomplish something? The real issue for any incoming minister is, for goodness sake, get a group of people around you, either as special advisors or from uh, outside, and it can be business or it could be academia or it could be uh, community enterprise. Get people around you who you trust but who will have the courage to tell you when they think you're wrong. That's what I call a guiding coalition. And you built that in the Home Office and we had it in education when we were together. I think we had it in education in a much more exemplary fashion because the permanent secretary knew what the job was, that he was not party political or engaged with what we should be doing in terms of our politics, but understood that his job was to make sure that the machine delivered and did so in a collaborative way so that bringing new people in was seen as a plus, not a minus. Uh, It wasn't a threat to the civil service. It was a a boost to their ability to to do their job well, uh, to get the civil service at each level to understand that they were part, they were a cog, they were part of the delivery process. Even the person who didn't think that they were significant needed to feel that they had a part to play and that ministers, special advisors and civil servants could meet on, I, I was going to say equal terms, but what I'm trying to say is, get rid of the deference and yes, minister and all of this rubbish and actually be able to have proper roundtable conversations in which everybody knows who takes the final decision, but the final decision is informed by everyone else's knowledge, experience and uh, an intellectual capacity as well because there's a lot of it about in the civil service which is massively underused. If you take the current government, the new current government, They're facing a crisis all around them with energy, with the economy, with the war in Ukraine, the instability in the world. And that adds to the pressure on them. Now, in in the Home Office, we hadn't been there very long when September 11th, 2001 happened. So it's not the same kind of crisis, but that sense of being the world changing around you, dramatic things happening, very unpredictable. What are the keys to carrying you through a crisis like that or the kind of crisis that the ministers currently face and the new prime minister? I think all of us, when things are in flux, when there's rapid change taking place, we, we need at least one anchor. We need at least stability in the way 
that we're operating. We've got a major challenge. How do we rise to that challenge? The, the Home Office used to say to me, we couldn't foresee the 11th of September coming. It's like a cloud coming out of a, a blue sky. It was nothing of the sort. There'd been activity, franchised terrorism activity from 98 onwards, which you know inevitably was going to hit the West and not just East Africa. That kind of prediction can help you in terms of preparing. Now, if you're not prepared, and the Ukraine war was another example, some of this was foreseeable, some of it wasn't, but you take the bits that you can learn from and you know, and then you build in mechanisms so that whatever happens in terms of people running around like headless chickens outside, there's a calming, thoughtful attitude that says, there will be solutions to this. We will have a complete vault fast. We will change policy dramatically, partly to demonstrate that we are different and partly to give us a breathing space because we've been so dramatic in our own response that people will give us the benefit of the doubt. They may say this is crazy, but we won't know it's crazy for a couple of years. And the Home Secretary is obviously one of the most powerful people in a government. And when you get a security terrorism threat, it becomes at the centre of events. But in those moments, I know how important it was for you to have the right relationship into number 10 Downing Street and with the Prime Minister, because when the crisis gets to the centre of politics, the Prime Minister is inevitably involved. So have you got any advice how a minister, a, new, a newly appointed Secretary of State, should build the relationship with number 10? It's a two-way street. I mean, I was very fortunate on the 11th of September 2001, when I'd only been Home Secretary for three months, when the attack took place and we were recalled into the COBRA meeting, into the cabinet room, the immediate atmosphere was one of calm from the Prime Minister and the Chancellor. Now, th that enabled me to respond in kind when I came out to key officials in a way that demonstrated that we got the enormity of what had happened, but we weren't in panic mode. And that then reverberates outwards. Now, if you're building a new relationship with the Prime Minister, it has to be based on trust. So they have to know that you've got their back as well as they've got yours. You will be looking for what they want and how best, not necessarily the first thought they had, but how best you can deliver on the agenda that they've, they've set you and that you have a personal relationship where you can tell them the truth. I'm going to give you an example in the Home Office. Immigration has been a continuing challenge. And Tony would sometimes say to me, I'd like you to do this. And I'd say to him, well, Tony, if you want me to do that, that's absolutely fine. But let's talk to the Foreign Office and the Ministry of Defence about the consequences of what you've just told me in terms of our relationship with, for instance, the French. And after a moment or two of reflection, we'd all realise that the consequences of doing it in that way would be catastrophic. So you, you'd then come at it to achieve the same goals. We, we agreed with the then Interior Minister, Nicolas Sarkozy, to close the Sangat camp, to take a, a third of the residents who were in terrible conditions. We would then, as a quid pro quo, have intelligence, uh, customs, uh, immigration on French soil for the first time since the Joan of Arc uh, debacle. <laughs> And, and that was out of being able to 
determine an alternative view with the support of a prime minister who would back that up with the French president. But we had to persuade the French that it was in their interest and not just the, the British. So you, you, can re- you can replicate that in, in, in internal domestic politics as well. If you want people to do things, giving them a good kicking is not a great start. So you have right. to work out what's in your joint interests and then take it from there. And an incoming Secretary of State or Minister has to work out internally in government what other ministers, what other departments are going to be objecting to what you're doing. Can you persuade them that actually not only do you know what you're doing, but actually you've engaged them, that they, they are not just going through the Mandarin of everybody seeing each other's reports, ticking them off so that every Secretary of State gets the same lowest common denominator report, but actually departments see that they're part of the process. So it's quite a delicate one, this, because ministers are learning as they go along. I mean, I I learned as I went along. I would make a much better Secretary of State now than I did in the eight years I was doing it. That's interesting, because you've had, you've had time to reflect. Time to reflect, to reflect on what went wrong and what part I played in it going wrong. For instance, I, I, although I say it myself, I was very good at building a ministerial team and engaging advisors and reaching out. I was terrible with my fellow cabinet ministers, always wanted my way, which is understandable, but I wanted it in the way I wanted it. I didn't always explain. I certainly didn't always do the smoozing, and I'm afraid you do have to in a way that I wasn't good at in terms of having a drink with someone, trying to work through why they object to what you're doing, where they're coming from. Can I give them a bit of credit for what I'm doing? I used to think through what's the best way of dealing with the Chancellor, Gordon Brown? Well, the best way was always to make Gordon think that it was his idea. And something human about that, actually. And so long as I didn't mind taking part of the credit rather than the whole of the credit – we got on fine. Actually, having a good relationship externally with colleagues outside your immediate brief really does, I think, make a difference. If I try to summarise what you've been saying for, for, for advice to ministers, there's a, there's a thing about being calm in a crisis. There's a thing about knowing what you want, what you're trying to do uh, and sticking to it. And there's a thing about building relationships with the civil servants, with the team around you, and with your cabinet colleagues, uh, and obviously into number 10. Share with your ministers. Some ministers don't actually know what the Secretary of State's doing. They've no idea what the, 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 the big issues that he or she wants tackling really are because they don't even have team meetings. So you know, it might be maybe tedious to have a weekly team meeting. It's absolutely crucial. You, you're cascading out, but they're, they're also contributing in. So you're not just telling them, you're hearing them as to what they're picking up as well. And probably my most important message to any minister is, for God's sake, be, a, be capable of making decisions. If you don't make a decision, you've effectively made a decision because things will carry on as they always have. And if you're not capable of making a decision, I suggest you go and find something else to do. Yes, you and I could probably both name ministers, but we're not going to, where the decisions queued up in their in as it were, and never got done. They sent it back for 
I just need a bit more. I just need a bit more reassurance. I just need, they didn't need that at all. They just couldn't actually make their mind up. When we were together in the, in the education department, but but then later when you're in the home office, you've got that crisis. You've got all the pressure of the home office, immigration you've mentioned. We had rising crime for a little while at the very beginning of your term of office, or certainly in some crime types. You weren't confident of the people around you in the home office. How do you keep yourself motivated when everything seems to be falling apart? Well, I was fortunate that although I neglected friends and family, I had very good friends. So I always had some bunker to go to, even if it wasn't often enough. But my main strength was actually back in the community. It was back with people who taught me what wasn't working. You know, when we said we were doing things and I was back in the constituency and people understood that it wasn't happening, that was a strength in terms of going back with real evidence. And I suppose I'd say to anybody, I didn't have the kind of hinterland that Dennis Healy had or the capacity to work three days a week like Roy Jenkins in a totally different era. But I did have countryside to walk in. I did have a love of poetry and still do. I still was able sometimes just to sit down and have a meal and just be a normal human being. And whatever it is that the person has that's of an interest might be completely different to me. Do it and learn a bit from me. My work-life balance was shocking. If you can actually take not just a Sunday afternoon off, but you can take the whole of Sunday off, then you'll be a better human being, seriously. And you convince yourself that you've just got to do more and more and more. And, you know, the world will fall apart if you're not on top of every single element. That was my mistake. Don't do that. Actually understand that, you know, touching life outside is is like a regenerator. Just put your foot down, find a new way of working and take Sunday off. You talked about your constituency in your case. It wasn't just your constituency, it was where you'd grown up. So you had very deep roots there, and that must have been spiritually uplifting as well as uh, politically. It was uplifting because I could see that we were actually making a difference. I could feel it and talk to people about it. They didn't all recognise it was the government that was responsible for working with them or alongside them to do it. They, But it was working. Things were changing dramatically. And because of that and because it was your roots they put up with things as well. They, they could tell you what they thought about what was happening and still give you a hug. Um, I mean, I'll just give you a personal example. I ran into real problems with my private life. I had a little son and it created absolute havoc because I wasn't married to his mum. And I went to open a Sure Start programme in the constituency when things were really bad for me. And the head of the Sure Start centre said well we're really not it's really good that you've managed to carve out time this afternoon David and we want you to know we've set aside a place for your little one and everybody <laughs> was clapping and crying at the same time and I thought this is unbelievably home this is the place I grew up in these are the people I love and they'll see me through. But what about the media pressures Did you read the papers? You must have read lots of articles saying how dreadful David Blunkett is. How do you stop that getting into your psychology? It's extremely difficult. I mean, John Major 
made his life a misery by reading everything in the early morning. I had people in all the departments from the communications director who actually took on a relay of reading me the headlines and the early stuff very early and then sort of stepping back while I exploded (laughs) and sent messages in. I was using old technology. I used to leave answer phone messages and they had about three, they had a bank of three phones and answer phone messages in in the home office for me to leave messages rather than email because I wasn't any good at it and it was the very early days of it. And if I had my time again, I needed to know what was top line, what was really happening. And there usually was in the home office out of 10 media items, we'd probably be at least four. My challenge, and I didn't always get it right, was to see the wood for the trees. What was really important? What was going to explode and continue to explode like a firework, um, a jack-in-a-box, you know, where it wouldn't just be a whiz and a bit of a fizz and it would be all over by lunchtime? But what was going to continue? I got better at it because you, you use your instincts. But Actually, calming yourself was fairly important. Special advisors were very good at saying, you know, okay, you're really angry. This has gone wrong. People have misinterpreted, but, but it's not going to last. Just, just let's concentrate on the thing that you wanted to do today rather than getting completely dislocated. The task you have to do is not only to stop being completely reactive, but to work out what your media plan is. Now, it's different now with social media. You've got a whole new platform for good or ill. Uh, My task was to try and set the agenda from the department so that if other things hit you, they bounced off a bit. And I thought we were pretty good at setting the agenda. You needed a whole range of things that were pegs on which to hang announcements that were interesting to the media. I mean, I I say to colleagues in the Shadow Cabinet, Nobody's going to carry your article or have you on the Today programme if you haven't got anything to say. So you've got to have something that is newsworthy, and then you can piggyback other things off it. I think if whichever party you're in, you've got to be able to, to paint that picture. It's got to be a, a part of a jigsaw, because otherwise it's a, it's a once-off announcement that just disappears into the ether. On that particular theme, you and, and others who were in at the beginning of New Labour before we were in government, learned that whole process of building a narrative and connecting announcements to some some themes and being very consistent and, and being on the front foot rather than just waiting for stuff to hit you and reacting to it. So you, obviously there are things that are going wrong at the same time, but people did have some sense of what's the story here? What is this government doing on education? In the end, you've got to know what it is that you came in to do. You've got... It's really back to the first question you asked me. If you have a feel about what what it is that this government's about, if they know that, then what they say and do will be fed into that narrative. My my sadness from 2008-9 was the brilliant practical steps that were taken, including coordinating through the international mechanisms, the reaction to the global financial crisis. There was no narrative as there was with COVID, obviously COVID a lot easier, people understood it, or with the Russian incursion into Ukraine and the energy crisis. 
as to why the government borrowed large sums of money to save the economic system from collapsing with all the consequences, even though actually at that time, the borrowing went into the investment in terms of saving individual banks such as uh, RBS, which you know then has allowed government since to sell off those assets to redeem some of the debt. Listening to the new Chancellor of the Exchequer on the 23rd of September and thinking, my God, what did we go through hell in 2008-2009 from the very same people in circumstances where we've still got some of the assets to sell off. And this borrowing will provide us with no assets whatsoever, but a, a, a debt which uh, the incoming coalition said would be an albatross around the necks of young people for decades to come. Well, you know, I would have done the same borrowing in the pandemic as the government did. I would now borrow, but I would also put a, a massive windfall levy. And I'll tell you why, because it's not just that it's actually sensible and fair that they should take part of the lift and the load, but because the messages you send to the public determine how they react. When people ripped each other off in the 1980s and there was a rejoicing in that kind of spiv economy, other people then started to react to it. Well, if they're going to behave like that, I will. And society does, you could call it nudge if you like, it's a psychology of the mass where if you get it wrong, then people react in a different way. If they think that bankers' bonuses don't matter or that, you know, eye-watering borrowing to cut taxes for the rich doesn't matter, they start changing their attitude about what matters in terms of their behaviour as well. Yeah. So, you know, you could be in a very dangerous game. But we're moving into an era where the interest rates are higher and to, to run up government debt at a time when interest rates are rising actually puts the possibility of investing in the public infrastructure, the public services at risk, I would say, because you're going to be paying more and more of your annual budget on interest rate payments. Ironically, I mean, I'll just say this as a twist. I mean, as you know, I'm, I'm, I was deeply opposed to uh, Jeremy Corbyn's economic policies and, and much else. But ironically, if we borrowed in the period of austerity, when you could borrow on the markets, the government can borrow at 0.5% rather than the three and a half, which we've now moved into, the things you could have done in terms of investing, not just in physical infrastructure, but in education and skills would have been transformational. And I want future governments to see investment in learning and skills as infrastructure, as the the payback will be obvious because you, you skill people for productivity and growth as their own well-being, but their flexibility, their responsiveness, their ability to cope with enormous change with artificial, artificial intelligence and robotics. And my, my real sadness is that education is now on the back burner. It's not seen as absolutely key to everything that I would want to see this country do. Given all of you, what you've been saying in your own tremendous career that we've been discussing, I use the word tremendous, you're too modest too, but given all of that, and given that you've said education and skills will be fundamental to planning the future, when you look ahead, if it was down to you, what would be the two or three things 
you would emphasize as a kind of agenda for the future? I've heard you talk about the technological revolution and all of that, but what else would you add? We are entering, a, I suppose we're accelerating rather than entering, we're accelerating an era where artificial intelligence, robotics, the understanding of how to program, but also how to handle digital will be fundamental. We've we've moved from the old ways of doing things in industry through numerical control, which was then part of the revolution of technology, into a completely different era. And it, I, when I talk about the change in the nature of work, I don't just mean people being able to work part from home and part in a, an employee's premises, which obviously emerged from COVID, but a complete transformation in the way in which we will do our jobs, in which we will deliver. And that will be in the practical world of current apprenticeship and manufacturing, so much as it still exists, and delivery of services. It will be right across the piece, including high-level vocational jobs like medicine. So, you know, we've got to prepare people for that ability to change. If you're going to work till you're 75, till you're 80, possibly the child born today might well work work till they're 80 because they'll live to over 100. And with our pension schemes at the moment, they're going to need to carry on working. So we need a lifelong programme which I would like to see has individual learning accounts, so it's a tripartite approach between government, individual and business. I would like to see a career service that was lifelong, that people could turn to. I'd like to see people having sabbaticals, not just time off, but to go and do something else that refreshes and informs. There's things we can do in the future that will be transformational, but it's got to be for everybody. The the idea that you do it for a few and it trickles down to the rest is was always ludicrous. But at least there was some structural reason to believe that when 80% of the population were in blue-collar jobs. Now we're talking about an era where people will be challenged in all kinds of ways to change. And if people believe that all you need is a highly educated quarter and everybody else will just fit in, then you're living in a bygone era. Let's take it back to the conversation we were having about being an effective minister. How did you consciously learn? You you talked about learning as you were a minister, and obviously you learn by making mistakes and you learn from people around you. But how did you make explicit the learning you were doing day to day? I was fortunate because I'd been leader of Sheffield, and I'd learned quite a lot, by the way, in local government. It's a very different environment. You're working much more closely with officials, but I'd learned a bit about myself, the things that I wasn't good at, as well as the things I was good at. I knew I was good at oracy, (laughs) but I wasn't always good at listening. And so I had to get a grip of that. What, how did I learn on the job? Partly, as I've said already, by having people around me, special advisors, but, but also private office who were able to quite gently tell me when they thought I was going off alarming and and if I was upsetting people, because you do, and then you regret it, and it doesn't work. All it does is either create resentment and bitterness against you or fear of you, and both of those are entirely, uh, well, they're not just wrong, they're dangerous because... Destructive. Oh, completely destructive. So having people who you listen to, you know, 
just calm it. You know, just let's think of another way of getting the across. It did work a bit with me because when something catastrophic went wrong in the Home Office where we we put out a paper that hadn't been approved with something in it that was quite security-wise, was quite worrying, I actually did send a note to the middle-ranking civil servant who'd made the mistake because they hadn't been properly supervised, saying, we all make mistakes, don't worry about it, you're not going to be jumped on. And apparently the person burst into tears. It doesn't mean you, you can't be tough when people are incompetent or indifferent or, or you know, and or just don't want to do the job. Of course you've got to be tough. But how you do it is about man management. And I, if we had time when secretary states are appointed, it would be quite good if they went through a crash course, both in terms of how to do the politics, because how to do statescraft is a craft. It, it needs to be understood. But also person management in managing your own office, your own advisors, and managing a department that might actually not want to carry out your will. Very good, David. So we've talked about a lot. Our time's coming to an end. Is there, is there anything that you wish we'd talked about that we haven't talked about or, or a last thought that you want to just put into the conversation? Only that actually... We've got to do things with people, not to them. If you can work out government with the people as well as for the people um, and get them to understand that they are part of the delivery process. So governments pretend that they can do things because we like to believe we can parade what we've done, understandably. But active citizenship and engagement at every level, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's people who are right at the front cutting edge in the health service, for instance. If they feel that you understand that you're working to support them and with them, they might actually get that this is a collaborative effort rather than that you're passing down the word as a top-down, you're doing what we tell you to do. And I I wish we'd done a lot more of it. It's an interesting thought and reflection. One of the politicians I've grown most to admire elsewhere in the world is a former Prime Minister of Mozambique called Luisa Diogo. Wonderful woman. She was Prime Minister for six years, about 15 years ago. And in one of the years she was finance minister, just just before she became Prime Minister, Mozambique's economy grew 15% in a single year, which was tremendous growth, admittedly from a low base. I said to her when I was interviewing her, how did you do that? And she said, oh, no, no, I, I didn't do it at all. The people of Mozambique did it, she said. So the job, and then she went on and she said, the job of government is to unlock the music in people. I thought that was a lovely idea. And you can do that with an enabling government, not by trashing government. You can do it yeah. with a supportive government rather than tiny government. And it's, you know, in a complex global community, in a world that doesn't take prisoners, where power lies way beyond individual governments. We've got to understand that. Thank you, David. That's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much indeed, as ever, Michael. Go well. Thank you for listening to the Accomplishment Podcast and my thanks to guest David Blunkett. You can get in touch with me on Twitter 
at michaelbarber9. And feel free to suggest guests whose stories of change you'd like to hear. There's also a book that accompanies this podcast, Accomplishment, How to Achieve Ambitious and Challenging Things, published by Penguin. Don't forget to review the Accomplishment podcast and to subscribe so you don't miss great game changers telling their stories on how to get things done. This podcast is produced by Siobhan O'Connell, thanks to her and to the rest of the team.